Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 183, and we're back after a week off to talk about stealth vans. I know some of you don't think it exists, but I know some of you do. Let's set the record straight. We're also going to talk about a video I saw from my friend Luke in Finland, and it teaches you an awful lot about van life. We're going to review a product you may have seen on TV called Alien Tape, and a place to visit that is made out of a cave. (laughs) I mean, it's a cave. You'll see. You'll see. Anyway, welcome back, everyone. I'm terribly sorry for missing last week. I was having a terrible bout of insomnia, and I was spending most of the day asleep or half asleep, and there's no way I could have edited anything. It would have just come out like this and uh, well that's just no good so uh, I'm very happy to be back and you know I drive around a lot in my van and I think like many of you I look at every other van that comes by and I'm like is that a camper van is it is that one is that a max air vent on the roof I'll bet it is a camper van I'll bet it is oh they've got a Yakima box and wait 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 is that an inflatable kayak on the yeah they're campers for sure and most of the time I figure I'm right, because like you, I am tuned in to the whole camper van thing. I know how to spot them, and you do too. And because of that, a lot of folks think that the whole idea of stealth vans is dead. It's dead. Everybody knows you're sleeping in that van. Don't even try to hide it. Whenever they see a van pulling to McDonald's, they know, because everybody has seen these vans by now. Well, that's sort of true, but it's sort of not true. So I have 10 principles of stealth vanning to share with you. You can accept them. You can reject them. You can disagree. You can do whatever you want with them. But I think each one of these things is true. And I think that if you want to have a more successful van life experience, especially in places where you don't want anyone to know you're sleeping in there, this list could come in really handy. So let's start with, uh, no, what do you say number one, huh? Number one, stealth isn't about being invisible. You are not making a stealth vehicle. It's not going to go invisible. It's not going to stay off the radar and invade other countries. It's doing nothing like that. The idea behind stealth is not to be invisible. It's to be ignorable. You want to be one of the hundreds and thousands of vehicles out there that people just drive by or walk by and completely ignore and forget about. I mean, yesterday I walked down the street, right? I probably passed 40 or 50 cars. I don't remember a single one of them because there was no reason to. Don't give people a reason to remember your van. And there are a number of ways to accomplish that. However, there's an important principle that overrides everything else I'm going to say, and that is number two. Comfort is more important than stealth. Let's face it, the stealthiest van in the world is a white cargo van. No windows, no vents, no air conditioning, no solar panels, nothing. There's, they're everywhere and they don't really attract a lot of attention unless someone's parked it outside of a school and is waving a bag of candy out the window. I mean, okay, we're not going to do that. But if you're just parked in a parking lot in one of these vans, 
no one's really going to pay much attention. But they're not going to be terribly comfortable. I don't care what you do inside. If you don't have ventilation, you're going to be suffering. And if you don't have a diesel heater or some other kind of heat in the winter, you're going to be suffering. No solar. How do you charge your stuff? You get it. Blah, blah, blah. So my personal principle is that if you're at the point where you have to sacrifice something that adds to your comfort just for the sake of stealth, no. Don't do that. Go ahead and put on that roof vent, add the solar panels, and don't worry about it. Because stealth doesn't have to be perfect. You just have to be ignorable. Number three, and this is true for just about any kind of van. I mean, let's take a step back here. I built a stealth van. My NV200 was pretty stealth. I never got a knock. I could park it anywhere. No one really paid any attention to it. I'm driving a freaking ambulance now. Stealth is right out the window. But this principle still holds true, and that is you can park just about anywhere for a single night. Now, I'm not talking about parking in front of the U.S. Capitol or in front of Old Faithful or any place like that. I'm talking about on a suburban street or an industrial zone in a city or even in most parking lots at shopping malls, you can typically get away with one night unless there's reason for them to be looking out. If you're in the mountains of Colorado and there are 900 vans parked there, that's different. But in most places, Nobody's going to bother you if you're just there one night. No one will even notice you if you're there two nights or three nights or you parked right in front of somebody's front door or something like that. Yeah, that's a little bit different. And that leads into number four. When you're sleeping at night, don't sleep in popular places. You know, if you want to go to Disney World in your van, well, obviously there's a lot of people down there trying to find free places to stay and everybody's on alert for it. There are laws against it. The state police are onto you and everything. So go do your Disney stuff and then drive somewhere else to sleep at night. Now that's a little hard because Disney is this very big thing, but go to some suburban neighborhood that's nowhere near any routes to Disney. And most likely people aren't gonna bother you at all because you're gonna be there all by yourself. You're not attracting any attention and it's not that big of a deal. It only becomes a big deal if you start overstaying your welcome. And part of that is number five, never have anything outside your van. I have seen people pull into Walmart, let the slides out of their RV, roll down a carpet, set up their tables and chairs and do a cookout. No, <laughs> this is why Walmarts won't let us park there anymore. Walmarts are not campgrounds. They're parking lots. Just park. That's it. Nothing outside your van. Now, you might have some stuff attached to the outside of your van because that's how you're traveling. You do kind of want to minimize that, but I get it. You know, maybe you have a bicycle that doesn't fit in the van and you have it locked to the outside. Okay, do what you can, but absolutely do not move into that space wherever you are because you're just there to sleep. And this one, uh, number six, number six, number six is a little bit... Um, well, we can talk about it. Let's talk about number six. When I first did my stealth van, I thought, you know, I should make this van look like it's some kind of innocuous business. And so I had these magnetic signs made up for the side that said basically nothing. It was like Joe's business. I don't even remember what it said, but it, it didn't make any sense. And there was a fake phone number on there. And I thought, oh, if anybody sees this, they'll think it's a, you know, it's a, it's a business van. They won't care about it. But then I realized that any writing you have on a van invite someone to read it. That's increasing their interest in your van and taking away from the ignorability. You don't want that. So I came to the realization that 
plain is best. No vanity plates, no bumper stickers, no fake signs, no follow us on YouTube. You know, it, nothing is a bigger indication <laughs> that you're in a camper van than a follow us on YouTube sign. Just have nothing. Again, you're sacrificing something here, right? Because let's say you do have a YouTube channel and you want to advertise it. Well, you kind of have to pick stealth or advertising or... You can use the magnetic signs and take them off at night. That's an option, too. One thing I do, or I used to do when I had a van I could actually sort of pretend to be stealth in, is I made the front look like it was nothing different. I had a safety vest hanging over the seat. In Chicago, that's very, very common in work vans. There'll be a safety vest hanging, hanging over the seat. And so I did that just to blend in. I didn't do it to pretend I'm a safety worker or anything like that. It just helps it to blend in better. And then... Believe it or not, this really adds to the effect of a norability. It, it sounds crazy, but have a fast food bag visible in your van. Have a McDonald's bag on the seat, a Burger King bag on the dashboard, uh, an empty cup in the cup holder, something like that. It just makes the van look used and on the move and livable, and it helps it be more ignorable. Again, I know that sounds crazy, but it actually works. If you see a perfectly clean van or a van that has maps all over it or anything like that, you're thinking, hmm, what's going on there? But if you see the, the detritus of everyday life in there, it doesn't register at all. Arrive late and leave early. And this is how this principle works. You go, you have your fun day, then you go somewhere, make dinner in your van, and then you turn the van into sleep mode. But you don't sleep there. You drive to where you're going to sleep and you immediately go to sleep. Yeah, you can read a book in bed and all that kind of stuff, but you're not going to do any cooking. You're not going to do any big activities. You're going to get there as late as possible, like maybe 10, 11 at night if you can, and stop, and that's it. And then in the morning, before you make breakfast drive off somewhere else that minimizes the amount of time you're in a place where you might be bothering somebody and that also minimizes the time when you're going to have problems with people if you drive off and cook your breakfast somewhere else you're not going to have any difficulties whatsoever i have done this several times and the way i do it is i make it so that when i get up in the morning i don't get dressed or anything i just put on some shoes crawl up front and drive for about half an hour to a rest area or a park or something like that and then i chill out. I make breakfast at my own pace. I turn the back into living mode rather than bedtime mode. And it's just very easy and low stress. And I don't have to worry about, am I making too much noise cooking? Or can somebody smell those hot dogs through the vent? Or I just don't have any of those problems. It's very low stress. Number nine, and this is a trick I've done many times, is to park ambiguously. <laughs> What the heck does that mean? Well, it means park in a place where no one's sure whose jurisdiction you're parked in. For example, I was in Missouri and I had to park in a strip mall in a small town. I didn't have to, but that's where I chose to park. I didn't pull up right in front of a single business. I parked three rows away from the business's front doors and then in between the front doors so that either of those stores wouldn't know if my van was there for the other store and you know maybe I was parking there because I'm going to be fixing their plumbing in the morning or maybe I'm going to paint or whatever for one night nobody's going to question that and uh, I never ever got a knock so that strategy seemed to work and number 10 it's not the knock you're worried about it's towing <laughs> 
The reason you're not worried about a knock is because you're going to follow my other advice that I've given before, which is that anytime you get a knock, you do not argue, you do not have any kind of conversation, you just say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm leaving now, and then you drive to your plan B spot, and every single night, you've got a plan B spot. That is the lowest stress way to deal with a knock. Don't argue, because if you argue and you get all head up, you're not going to sleep anyway. Just leave. It may not be fair, that person might be totally in the wrong, but it doesn't matter. What matters is you and your sleep. And the way to get the most of that is to go to your plan B spot. However, you do have to worry about towing. If you're parked in a place and for whatever reason somebody decides to tow you, well, that can just be downright dangerous. Tow companies are supposed to verify that there's nobody in the vehicle before they tow it. But at 3 o'clock in the morning, I don't think a lot of them are doing a very good job of that. So think about that where you park. Think about, is there any chance that I'm in a tow zone or anything like that? One way to deal with this, and this is controversial, is to leave a note on the the driver's seat. That says, if there are any problems with this van, please call, and then a phone number. A tow truck driver with any diligence at all should see that. If they call that number, well, they'll get you in the back. Some people don't like that because it advertises that there's somebody in the van, but my thought on it is that it only advertises that someone's in the van to somebody who's looking in the van anyway. So folks, in my opinion, stealth is real and a useful skill. It is not being invisible, it's being ignorable. And you can use a lot of these tips to go a lot of places you may not have even thought of and have a lot less stress sleeping at night in your van. Well, thanks to Kent and Robbie for sponsoring this week's episode. I totally appreciate it. Because of that, there are no ads in the podcast version. YouTube continues as YouTube does. If you would like to help support this show, please visit buymeacoffee.com slash built to go. And if you would like... I will send you a Hook Walk-A-Bang sticker so long as you give me your U.S. or Canadian address. Oh, I should stop waving it. Yes. Anyway, thank you very much for the support. I really appreciate it. I really like not having ads on the podcast. All right, let's talk about some news. we got three items of news for you today. First off, Frankie and Alex from FNA Van Life are now parents. Uh, we interviewed them a while back, and I know some of you watched them on YouTube. They finally had the kids. September 22nd, their daughter was born. They haven't released a whole lot of information yet, except for a single picture on Instagram, which I have linked in the show notes. So congratulations. Congrats to Alex and Frankie and Paco, and we look forward to your new van life adventures, which are going to be quite a bit different. (laughs) Another news article caught my attention, and it was from SciTech Daily, and it's about a new battery technology involving aluminum rather than lithium. And while this article is just one of probably two dozen articles about battery tech, it made me think of something, and that is that... When you invest in lithium batteries, and it is an investment, they're quite expensive, you're typically quoted that there's a 10-year life of these things. You know, they do 4,000 cycles or whatever. That's about 10 years worth of battery. But, you know, it could be as soon as two years from now that lithium is seen as old-fashioned. 10 years from now, it almost certainly will be. So how does that inform your battery purchasing plans? It can be tricky. It can be tricky. In my estimation, lithium is still worth it, even if you're only going to use them 
two, three, four years, it's still worth it to get lithium. Yeah, it's something to consider. You know, if you don't want to shell out however many hundreds or thousands of dollars for lithium, you know, you have an argument in that there might be something better coming down the pike. You just don't know yet. So something to consider anyway. You can read the article. I'll have it in the show notes. And as you've probably heard, we are in the midst of a UAW, that's the United Auto Workers, strike. How does that affect vans? Uh, a lot, actually. While many of the van plants are still open at this point, we're seeing more and more shutdowns. And no matter what, parts are going to be harder to find. So if you have some kind of work you need done on your van, try to do it as soon as possible because we might get into the state where you just can't get those parts and you have to wait. And my local Mercedes dealer has 20 or 30 sprinters sitting in its back lot waiting for parts. And that's Mercedes. They're not even affected by these strikes. Ford Transits are directly affected, ProMasters are directly affected, and as far as I can tell now, the GMC Savannah, they've completely stopped production of. So, yeah, things, again, aren't great in the U.S. van community, and I know that applies to Canada, too. Sorry, guys. I have a link in the show notes about how the strike is expanding and which vehicles are affected, but uh, it doesn't really matter. It's just a general thing. The strike is bad for us, and while the automakers are making record profits and not sharing it they're going to try to do that as much as possible and the workers are going to keep fighting it and uh, we lose the consumers lose none of these people are fighting for lower van prices so uh, you know take your pick on how you feel about unions I tend to be in favor of them in certain circumstances but there's no win for us here and uh, well I think we're owed a win (laughs) we've been beaten up over the last few years I would like to see the van people get a win for once Tech Talk. You may or may not have heard of a converter. Now, we talk a lot about inverters, right? Inverters take your 12-volt battery and turn it into 110 volts AC or 220 volts AC if you're in a country that's not the U.S. or Canada or Mexico or Japan or, you know, one of those. Anyway, that's what an inverter is. It lets you plug your normal household appliances into the van. A converter is kind of exactly the opposite, right? So this is a thing that if you do have shore power, it will provide 12 volts in your van. And they're supposed to charge your battery and give you 12 volt power in the van. And these things, well, they break all the time. They're really old technology, and some of the newer ones are better. Uh, But I got one with my Scamp, and I got one with my Winnebago, and they both failed, both of them. Now, all right, they're old, but still. But what do you do? Like, if you need something like this, should you go buy a converter? Because some of them are super expensive, and there aren't that many that know what to do with lithium batteries. Some of them just spit out 12 volts all the time. They're not trying to charge your batteries. Like, here's your 12 volts battery. Do what you want with it. And as we know, modern battery chemistry isn't like that. You need a float charge. You need a bulk charge. You need, you know, ramping of charging. So I ran into this problem. (laughs) And my Winnebago had two 6-volt golf cart batteries. Regular old flooded lead-acid batteries, ancient technology. And this is a fairly economical way to get a lot of power into an RV. And I mentioned this on Facebook, but uh, I had neglected the water in these. These kind of batteries, you have to maintain the water level. And I noticed that the battery was kind of going down in charge. And I thought, oh, I better check the water. And uh, yeah, there wasn't any. Uh, I 
poured half a gallon of water into these two batteries and yeah now they're they're done i ruined the batteries now i don't know how old they were they could be 10 years old for all i know so i'm not too broken up about it but now i'm in the situation where the tiki bago the winnebago 1973 d22 is always on shore power and i don't really need batteries that much so what do i do what do i replace these things with and i haven't decided um i can't use regular lithium because there's a solar charger that's going to work all winter long and i'm not going to be there to manage freezing temperatures i don't think i want to spend the money on a self-heating one so i'll probably end up with an agm but in the meantime i had an emergency i was down there for a three-day trip at the tiki bago and i had no batteries which meant no water pump the fridge controller wouldn't work so i had no fridge i had no lights so what do you do well i used a battery charger you can buy these very inexpensive battery chargers. They're meant to keep your lawnmower battery going or your car battery going. And I just hooked it up to the terminals where the battery went. And boom, everything started working again. And I thought, well, why don't we just use battery chargers instead of converters? Well, I don't know the answer. Um, I did a bit of research on this and I cannot find anything that says that you can't do this. I mean, what's the difference between a battery charger and a converter? Well, the basic difference is that the converter has basically two 12 volt outputs. One that sends 12 volts to everything in the van and another that charges the battery. The battery charger is just going to charge your battery. So if you have one hooked up to your batteries and you turn on the lights, the battery is powering the lights and the charger is replenishing the battery. Is this bad? Well, it might cause the battery charger to lose life or something like that, but the battery charger, and I've got a really cheap one. I've got like a $20 battery charger. It's only four amps, which is not a lot, but for what I'm doing in the Tiki Bago, it's plenty. It has profiles in it. It actually detected what kind of battery was there, and while well, it's trying to charge it, the battery's dead. But I have 12 volt power, so I can't recommend this yet because I don't quite understand it. But I think if you've got a low end build and you don't use shore power that much, a cheap battery charger might let you spend the night using the shore power on all your 12 volt appliances rather than using your battery. And it seems to work as much as I've tried it now for a few weekends and it seems to work just fine. So it's something to consider and it's not a big investment and you're not risking anything. The charger's not going to ruin your batteries. If you get a modern charger with profiled charging, make sure if you have lithium batteries that says can charge lithium on it, I think you're going to be fine. So... That's a lot easier than hooking up a converter, which has all kinds of wires and they're big and they make heat and they're noisy. And usually all your 12 volt has to run through the converter. It acts like a fuse block too. I mean, if you're retrofitting a van, that's a pain in the butt. Just consider it. I will have a link in the show notes to a charger that's similar to the one I'm using. Heck, let me know if you have any problems, but I haven't had any, and I've actually used this technique a few years now, and now that I've used it over time in the Tiki Bago, I think I can recommend it. Almost. Maybe. <laughs> Caveat emptor. <laughs> product review. I am very surprised to heartily recommend this product, but I do. It's called Alien Tape, and you've probably seen it on TV. In fact, if you go to the As Seen on TV section of Walmart, Target, Menards, or wherever, you may find this product. And um, it sounds too good to be true, and, and, and it is, in a way. 
first thing, throw away the box. Don't read any of that crap. <laughs> All the stuff they tell you that it will do, who cares? Ignore that. I'm going to tell you what it will actually do, and what it actually does is pretty darn cool. So this tape, as they call it, is this flexible, plasticky substance. It's very stretchy, and you know, if you stretch it, it'll stretch back. And it's very sticky, but it's not sticky in an adhesive way. It doesn't leave any residue. It actually doesn't have any glue on it or anything. It's The material itself just has this inherent stickiness. And it's great for very specific things. For example, if you have something that slides around in your van and you pretty much want to leave it in that one spot, like let's say you have a box in a cupboard and you want the box to stay put because you put things in it. If you put a generous amount of alien tape on the bottom of that and stick it in the cupboard, it isn't going to move. And then the really special thing about alien tape is you can just take it off. No residue ever. It can't leave a residue. It doesn't have any. It's not like 3M tape or Velcro or anything like that. There's no glue. So I've used it for putting things on the wall. One great thing I did with it is in the Winnebago, I put it underneath the seats. The Winnebago has a classic dinette area that turns into a bed. You know what, you've seen these before. And the cushions are always sliding off. It's really annoying. And this is true for almost all RVs. Well, I took a strip of alien tape and put it under the cushions and they don't move anymore. I mean, really, that fixed that problem just like that. I can tell the previous owner tried Velcro and duct tape and all kinds of things to keep that in place and it didn't work alien tape totally fixed it right up in the bathroom of the tiki bago i had all these unsightly marks I mean, it's a 50 year old bathroom and there's some holes in the wall well it's a tiki themed winnebago and i had a bunch of seashells so i took a little bit of alien tape and covered the holes with the alien tape and then just whacked a seashell right on there and it sticks and it looks better and nothing is coming off so this product absolutely has uses for van life. I would not use it for anything structurally important. <laughs> I would not use it for anything heavy. But if you want to put pictures on the wall or posters or anything like that, it works pretty well. And the wall can be porous too. The stuff sticks to wood really well. It sticks pretty well to windows. I've stuck it to Formica, vinyl, wood, all that stuff. It sticks pretty well. Oh, am I being paid for this? No, I bought this stuff on my own on a whim, and I really like it, and I'm glad I did. So I am heartily recommending it. Now, it isn't that cheap. I paid 20 bucks for three rolls, and I'll have a link in the show notes, of course. Uh, and you have to use a lot of it. That's the big trick with this. Don't try to be chintzy with it. Use a lot, and it will absolutely keep things from moving and keep things on walls. Ceilings... I'm not sure about. I would not use it to put anything heavy on a ceiling. But, you know, if you want to decorate your van, it's awesome for that because it's totally undoable. I have these little coasters that are sticking up in the Winnebago that, you know, little tiki coasters, and one of them kept falling down. They were all put up with Funtac, and the Funtac wouldn't stick. I put on a piece of alien tape, and boom, problem solved. That thing hasn't moved. So I would consider it an essential purchase for your van. I like it that much. <laughs> Tales from the road. So with the recent flooding in New York City, some of us were talking in the Facebook group, Hello Anita, and we were wondering what happens, you know, what do you do in your van if you're in a flood? And we talked about, well, you basically should avoid it. <laughs> Be careful where you park. You know, if you're parking on beaches, 
consider where the high tide is. Never park in a dry wash. You know, always consider what could happen water-wise wherever you park. It's just a, a good thing to do. And if uh, the water starts rising, drive away. You know, it's some common sense things here. But uh, I wasn't always so careful. Um, I remember back in 1985, I was in West Virginia, and there was quite a bit of flooding. I was in college, and a friend of mine, and uh, I, we just decided to go out and see the flooding. Yeah, because, you know, college kids are smart, right? So I'm in my Datsun 510, and uh, we're cruising down these back roads of West Virginia, and uh, this was in Salem, West Virginia, if you're curious about what part of West Virginia we were in. And we're driving by, and we're, I mean, and the flooding was amazing. I mean, everything looked like, these former farms looked like lakes. It looked like there were houses floating away, and uh, ho-hum, we're just driving down the road. And, oh, look, some of the water's on the road. Well, that'll be fun. Let's speed up and drive through the water and make this big splash, which I did, and and then the car started to float. Floating cars are bad. Um, they're arguably better than sinking cars, but cars that float, that isn't how it works. And uh, yeah, the car actually floated. And I remember turning the steering wheel and nothing at all happening because the car was floating. <laughs> The engine was still running. Fortunately, there was enough momentum to get us to the other side of the road, and me and my blithful ignorance just kept on driving like that was no big deal. But I thought about it afterwards, and I was like, wait a minute, the car was floating. <laughs> That's not good. So since then, I have learned, and this is very good advice, is never walk or drive in standing water because water is always the same level and you don't know what's under it an inch of water looks like six feet of water you can't tell the difference now if you have to walk through water again don't but if you have to carry a stick with you and poke the stick in front of you and if you have to drive through water you don't you don't have to drive through water you should never drive through water. I, I mean, the only time I can imagine needing to drive through water is if you're being chased by Freddy Krueger or something like that. And heck, it is October, so anything's possible. But no, seriously, do not drive in water. Don't set yourself up for problems. Here in Chicago, every time we get a heavy rain, the depressions under the railroad bridges fill with water and cars drive in there because it looks flat and end up destroying their vehicles because their engines go underwater and then they block up traffic for hours, which is what everyone's really concerned about. So, water bad, don't do what I did, learn from me being stupid so you don't have to. A place to visit. Ah, Route 66. No, not that Route 66. I'm talking about Interstate 66. Interstate 66. This is the road that leads from Washington, D.C. through the Beltway into Virginia. And it goes oh, quite a ways. And um, I used to live in Manassas, Virginia, which we didn't. We called it something a little bit different. <laughs> My wife at the time worked on Wisconsin Avenue in D.C., and we had to commute. And uh, holy cow, it was horrible. The traffic was brutal. And this was in 1993. I can't imagine what it's like now. Anyway, 
at the end of Interstate 66 is a wonderful place called Luray Caverns. This is a classic old school cave that you can visit. You know, it's probably been in business now for almost a hundred years. And it's your, you go in the cave and there's pretty lights and like this stalactite looks like the Empire State Building. You, you've done all this before. But this is a pretty good one. It's actually nice and there's a lot of stuff around the area that's interesting to see. And weird thing about this cave, well, I'm going to tell you another weird thing, but a specific weird thing about this cave is that it has ferns growing in it. Now, ferns need light to grow, and there isn't any light in caves unless people put it there for tourists. And over the years, those lights have provided enough energy that ferns can grow up around them. So cave ferns is something you're not going to see in too many places, but you will see them in Luray Caverns. But that's not what I'm saying you should go see. What you should go see is the organ. Long, long ago, somebody got the idea that if you take a hammer and you tap on a stalactite or a stalagmite, stalactites come from the ceiling, C for ceiling, stalagmites come from the ground, G for ground, you get it, they will make a sound. So, ding, 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 ding. And this guy went in one of the massive chambers in this cavern and tapped out an entire scale of notes on all of these, and then put a little actuators on them with little hammers and hooked them up to an organ keyboard and he could actually play music on the cave. And the sound didn't come from the organ because there weren't any pipes. The sound came from the stalactites and stalagmites all around you. So you were in the sound. And they used to have weddings there and it was amazing. But over time, well, things break down. You know, entropy is a thing. And unfortunately the organ, last I checked, was not operational anymore. Hey, real quick and dirty here. I just found out that the organ is actually playing music again. It's doing it automated. They don't have somebody actually playing it, but you can go there and actually hear the music, which is something I have never done despite being there like six or seven times. So, uh, yay. But you can still see it and you can still learn about it and just kind of marvel at it and realize that you're standing in a musical instrument that's underground. Uh, that alone, I think, is worth a visit. There's one other interesting thing there is that somebody built a house on top of the caverns and realized that the air was cooler down there. So they drilled a hole into the cavern so their home would fill with cool air, basically inventing air conditioning <laughs> just for them, just in their specific circumstance. But I'll bet around 1890, that was a really nice place to be. <laughs> anyway, I'll have a link in the show notes. It's, this is a well-known touristy site, but it's called Luray Caverns, and you definitely want to check out the organ just because it's such a unique thing. resource recommendation so i have a buddy in finland i mean we've never met or anything but he watches my stuff and i watch his stuff and uh well i like his stuff a lot and he recently published a video called finland's secret beach you know uh, he was he's not really a clickbait kind of a guy but that's a good title if you are Anyway, I watched his video, which is a very simple video of a man going to a beach in his van. That's it. That's all it is. He makes some dinner. He walks around on the beach and talks a little bit. Very standard kind of YouTube video, except it wasn't. I started looking and I saw more and more stuff and I thought, wow, there's a lot of principles in this video that are very valuable for van life. And so I left him a comment saying, you know, 
I think you put probably 10 van life principles in this video without even trying. And he asked me to basically prove it. <laughs> oh yeah, what are they? So here I am and I'm proving it. And, and I think you'll agree. So it would be a good idea to watch the video. You can stop this and watch the video and come back or whatever. But you know, you're in charge of the time zones here. I'm just the guy making the noise. It's called Finland's Secret Beach. The guy's name is Luke Bland. He's an American who's lived in Finland for 20 years. I'll have a link in the show notes, of course. But here are 10 things I noticed in his video that I think are informative for van lifers. The first was you don't have to paint the inside of your van white. Sure, white makes things look bigger. I posted a thing on Facebook that showed if you paint your walls white and your ceilings dark, it makes the ceiling come down and there's all these tricks you can do. The inside of Luke's van is black. It's almost all black. He has a few pieces of natural wood in there, but it's almost all black. And that there's a reason for that, which I'll tell you about in a second. And if you have a reason, absolutely paint the inside of your van black. It will look a little bit smaller. That's what dark colors do, but it's your van. If that's what you want, go ahead and do it. And it made perfect sense for Luke's van. And that's because number two, Luke's van is primarily a video studio. He edits videos in there. That's his primary use for the van. Now he sleeps in there too. He cooks in there. He does all the normal van stuff, but instead of optimizing the bed or optimizing the kitchen, he optimized the workspace and he has this massive desk with multiple monitors and he has an extremely comfortable place to edit videos because that was what was important to him. And it makes perfect sense. So Think about what's important to you. Some people just sleep in their vans and that's it. Some people hardly ever sleep in their vans, but do a lot of cooking in there. Whatever you're going to do, think about it and think about optimizing for that. In this video, he goes on basically a one day little adventure and he, you can see him at the beginning. He gets in the van, he says, oh, on a mini adventure. Mini adventures are totally legit. You don't have to be a full time van lifer driving the Pan American highway to be legit. I'm not a full-timer. I basically camp most weekends, but I have, you know, I'm, I'm a brick building here in Chicago. This is the condo I live in and uh, I would love to be a full-timer someday, but it's not where I'm at right now. So it's okay. Luke is far from a full-timer, but he is absolutely doing van life. So don't let anyone tell you any different. Number three, and I've talked about this a lot, having a partition behind the driver's seat is a very good thing for safety. And what Luke did is interesting. He built a wooden partition behind the driver's seat, and then he built a matching one all the way at the other end of the van. And those mark where his bed slash couch is. It's a really nice look and it provides almost all the safety that a full partition would. Accidents, sudden breaking, things happen. I have been hit in the back of the head by a tea kettle flying across the length of the RV I stopped suddenly in. Having a partition is a good safety thing and you can make one pretty easily and it can be attractive too, which I think Luke's is. Number five. So this is a secret beach in Finland and Luke talks about keeping it secret. Why? 
because of what I call the I overlander problem. And I've talked about this before, but I found a great camping spot in South Dakota. I put it up on I overlander. And then a year later, it had been shut down for any kind of overnight camping or parking because so many people went there. They saw it on I overlander was by itself. There wasn't much else in the area and they overran it and left trash everywhere and made a nuisance of themselves. And thus that spot is ruined. Whereas if I just had kept my mouth shut, it would still be there and well i could have used it anyway so it feels a little bit selfish to find the perfect spot and not share it but i get it because sharing it can sometimes ruin it i mean i know of a spot by garden of the gods in southern illinois and i haven't told anybody about it because of this problem Number six, uh, you don't need a permanent kitchen. I've said this many times. I did install a permanent kitchen in my van now, but in my other van, my NV200, I did have a little, uh, what Casey Roman calls a fairy sink, but the cooktop was removable. I actually had the same one Luke uses in this video. Those one of those butane cookers, and I would set it up when I used it and put it away when I didn't. And that was maximum use of the space. I didn't have a built-in cooktop taking up permanent space which I do in my sprinter now but my sprinter's bigger so I don't care so it's a good thing to think about you do not need to have a built-in cooker in fact you have a lot more flexibility if you don't Luke can take his thing and go cook out on a picnic table or in a friend's house or wherever he wants anytime he wants can't do that with a built-in one Number seven, uh, not every meal needs to be a gourmet meal. You know, you see so many of these videos where, well, what are we going to cook today? And they spend half the video chopping onions and putting in all kinds of weird ingredients and stuff and making this, this bowl of whatever the heck it is. You don't have to do that. I mean, if that's your passion and you want to, sure. But just getting a bag of pre-cooked food that you're going to heat up is totally legitimate and it makes a lot of sense honestly if you're thinking about a food safety aspect of van life buying only pre-cooked foods is a very safe thing to do because then if you have a problem with your fridge or whatever and stuff isn't kept at the right temperature it's at least pre-cooked which will make it a lot safer so you know luke makes a fine looking meal in his van but he didn't spend half the video chopping shallots or anything like that completely legit in fact i recommend it Number seven, even though Luke's van is not primarily a sleeping van, he has a comfortable bed and he spent some time making it. The video before this one actually talks about how he does his bed. And uh, yeah, I think that's an essential thing in every van. You have to have a comfortable place to sleep or you're going to hate van life. And Luke definitely put his attention there and it looks like a really comfortable bed actually. So good on you for that. Number eight, Luke talks about that he broke down in his car on the way to go look at a van. And because of that, he never looked at the van and didn't buy a van until much later in his life. And he now realizes he should have just gone to look at the van anyway and bought that van as his car. Yeah, that totally is a thing. You can have a camper van as your only vehicle. There are pros and cons, but I'm, I'm driving all around Chicago in a retired ambulance. <laughs> I go and do all the Chicago stuff in a retired ambulance, and uh, it's fine. It works. I pay a lot more for fuel. It's definitely harder to park, but it totally works, and I don't have to have two cars. And number 10, one of the more important things in Luke's video, camping alone is its own reward. 
Camping alone is great. It's wonderful. You do not have to go camping with somebody else. Now, it's all up to you, of course. You might be somebody who'd be terribly lonely camping by yourself on a beach at night, but I'm not. I really enjoy camping by myself. I enjoy camping with others, too. I do both. You can, too. So don't think that camping alone is horrible. Try it. Try it for three nights. See what you think. You might find that solitude and the ability to do whatever you want, whenever you want, is really wonderful, because that's what I think. <laughs> and finally, a bonus. Just to prove I could do 10, I'm going to do 11. Wine in a box is actually really well suited for van life. No, really. In Europe, wine in a box isn't seen as a bad wine. Some of their best wines are in boxes. And if you've never done this before, box wine is a box, but inside the box is a plastic bladder, and that's where the wine is. The big advantage for this in van life is there's nothing to break, and it takes up only as much space as it needs to, because you can take the bladder out of the box and put it in your cooler, and it will conform to whatever shape you need in there. And as you take wine out, it will get smaller and smaller and smaller. And at the end, you've got a cardboard box you can recycle or burn if you are having a fire. It's great for starting fires. And then this plastic bag that you do need to throw away. Much better than bottles. Bottles are heavy, they break, and they're always the same size, no matter how much is in them. So box wine for a van, absolutely. <laughs> Good job, Luke. Anyway, I invite you to check out Luke's channel and especially this video. I have links in the show notes like I always do. And uh, thank you, Luke, for making really nice videos. And uh, I really like watching them. And I really hope to get back to Finland someday so we can just go see the secret beach. <laughs> Well, folks, thank you very much for watching or listening to episode 183. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, yeah, the screen behind me is a little screwed up. It keeps showing 182 and 183. Sorry about that. Uh, music, as always, is by Simon Wagon. If you need to get a hold of me, I am Jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. Until next time, remember the words of Dinah Crake, who said, A secret at home is like rocks under the tide.